Listener supported. WNYC Studios. This is Brian Lair's Daily Politics Podcast from WNYC Studios. It's Monday, November 13th. I'm Bridget Bergen, senior reporter in the WNYC and Gothamist newsroom, filling in for Brian today. Let's talk national politics, Monday morning politics, and national security with New Yorker staff writer Susan Glasser, who writes a column there on life in Biden's Washington and co-anchors a weekly roundtable discussion on the Political Scene podcast. She's also co-author with Peter Baker of The Divider, Trump in the White House, 2017 to 2021. Susan, welcome back to the show. Hey, it's great to be with you. And Susan, let's jump right in with the latest development in the presidential race. South Carolina Senator Tim Scott has suspended his campaign. Now, he never got a ton of traction, uh, didn't make much of a dent in any of the polls for former President Trump, who has been leading consistently throughout the campaign. But it does narrow the choices for Republican primary voters seeking a Trump alternative, right? Well, that's right. I mean, look, he really made very few waves. He's one of the examples of those senator candidates who are perhaps more popular with their colleagues on Capitol Hill than with the voters. I I mentioned this to somebody and they said, oh, I didn't realize he was still running. Um, So, you know, he really didn't make much of an impact. Uh, Sadly, he'll probably be best remembered in this campaign for the bizarre spectacle of, you know, did he or did he not have a girlfriend who did or did not come up to him at the end of the last debate that he participated in? Uh, Well, let's shift gears um, to the polling that we saw last week that put uh, the former president ahead of President Biden in several swing states, really causing quite an uproar. But then, of course, Democrats did better than expected in Tuesday's elections, and some of the panic seemed to subside a bit. But in your latest column for The New Yorker, you write, the data point overwhelmingly to Biden sitting at near historic lows in popularity and being essentially tied with Trump, a man who was running on an explicit platform of revenge, retribution, and constitution termination. Wow. Um, Let's talk about the revenge and retribution part um, and start first with what you make of the polls and and some of the election results. You know, is there some hope there? Wow is right, right? I mean, you know, here we are a little bit less than a year out from the 2024 election. And, you know, even if you take the Biden campaign at its word, they're expecting at a minimum, uh, essentially a dead heat, a too close to call race. And, uh, you know, whether you dismiss any particular poll like that New York Times battleground poll or not, overwhelmingly, the evidence at this point in time suggests that uh, they are essentially tied, uh, if not in some places, Donald Trump slightly ahead. You know, the real problem in our politics, right, is is not only the extreme polarization, but it's really not a national election anymore because of the way our electoral system works. Essentially, it's it's a very, very heated race in maybe six or seven or, you know, at most 10 battleground states. And, you know, when you look at those, the picture is very worrisome, I think, for Democrats, in part because you have a president who is running far behind uh, what you might call generic Democrats uh, in in these races. So Democrats have, have racked up a long and impressive series of 
off cycle election wins, including last week, as you pointed out, in a number of races, uh, including in Deep Red, Ohio, where you had a victory of an abortion rights referendum in uh, Virginia, which now has a Republican governor. Democrats managed to take both the the state house and to keep the state Senate uh, in a race that was also seen as sort of a referendum on abortion rights. Kentucky, an incumbent Democratic governor, fought back a strong Republican challenge. So, you know, to me, those are not incompatible with uh, the worries about Biden's reelection campaign. If anything, they point to the fact that Democrats have a standard bearer about whom there's many questions, right? That the party itself seems to be faring stronger than the president right now. And that's that's worrisome, undoubtedly, to, to Democrats publicly and privately. Susan, I think one of the things that is confounding to Democrats nationally is this disconnect between economic indicators that the White House points to and public opinion about the economy, particularly, as you mentioned, in those states that are going to play such a crucial role in deciding the outcome of the election. Is that something that the president has to answer for? And and is there a, a way back? Is there a messaging problem or something else going on there? You know, I'm glad you brought that up, because I do think that's one of the main drivers uh, of concerns, in addition to probably the biggest driver being Biden's age, but he can't do anything about that. Uh, He certainly has the possibility to do more when it comes to uh, the economy and both communicating about it and actually taking actions. There is a lot of uh, frustration coming out of the White House, right? They think, look, you know, a year ago, everybody was predicting a recession and they were wrong. Uh, They were predicting a sort of a gloom and doomy scenario that didn't pan out with the economy, uh, which has made a a strong recovery, arguably stronger than that of other uh, comparable countries coming out of the pandemic. Uh, Inflation has eased its rate of increase. Uh, Jobs remain very strong. So, you know, they have a lot that they can point to. There's the uh, major investments in infrastructure beginning to come online as a result of the bipartisan infrastructure bill that Biden championed in his first year in office. And so, you know, they want to run on their record, but I've heard even from very, very senior Democrats here in Washington, including senior officials in Biden's own government, Bridget, great concerns about the Biden White House and campaign's decision to embrace this label of Bidenomics to try to convince Mm. people. uh, There's a lot of frustration with that that I hear from even senior Democrats saying that was a mistake, that you can't sort of push people into believing something they don't believe about the economy. And I have to say, you know, as the person who does the shopping in the family, uh, you know, at the grocery store, it makes me, you know, sort of sick in the stomach when I see some of these prices. Uh, And, um, you know, it's really the prices, the rate of increase in the prices has slowed. But, you know, I don't see any sign that they're taking back some of these enormous uh, increases. And and it looks to me in some cases that these companies have, you know, it's not like that they took, okay, well, we've had 10% or 15% overall inflation. Some of these things are 30% or more higher than they were before the pandemic. Absolutely. Is it the $7 half gallon of milk that was uh, raising your eyebrows, Susan? I know it was when we order, ordered our groceries recently. Um uh. And then you know, attaching- there is this separate olive oil shortage. I don't know if you know about this, which, again, <laughs> it's, you know, you shouldn't blame. You can't pin this on the Biden White House. But this bottle of olive oil that I've been ordering for years, it is 
it, they were trying to charge me $18 and 79 cents for it from the giant here. And I just thought, oh my gosh, you know, of course this is going to be driving voters anger. Sure. I, I hope that it was extra virgin and I hope it was imported from Italy. It wasn't. Um, <laughs> that's not a super fancy bottle of olive oil, I'm telling you. <laughs> um, and then, of course, the notion that, you know, the branding of this these supposed economic wins attaching Biden's name to it, you know, to your point, I, certainly is not something I think that is resonating well with voters. But Let's talk some more about um, what you wrote about former President Trump. And, and again, that, quote, platform of revenge, retribution and constitution termination. Um, one of the things you were referring to, I believe, is what he said on Univision. Let's play a little clip from that. If I happen to be president and I see somebody who's doing well and beating me very badly, I say, go down and indict them. Mostly what that would be you know, they would be out of business. They'd be out. They'd be out of the election. Ooh, okay. So, Susan, now, it, is this a new stance for the former president, given all the indictments he's facing? Or is this really just kind of the newest version of his lock her up chant, like he said during the 2016 campaign against Hillary Clinton? Well, that's right. I mean, what's old is new with Donald Trump. Uh, you know, there's there's a tactic that he has deployed with uh, a certain amount of success over his years, you know, seven years in politics. And that is sort of overwhelming us with so many different outrageous statements that uh, it's hard to focus on any one of them. Uh, he actually does have, as you just pointed out, Bridget, a long history of threatening legal retribution and attacks on his opponents. He did that with Hillary Clinton in 2016. It gets forgotten. But in 2020, during the 2020 campaign, he publicly called for the Justice Department to investigate uh, and, and, and charge Joe Biden with what it wasn't even clear. That was one of the um, uh, preludes to the public rift that he ended up having with Bill Barr, his attorney general. That actually happened before the 2020 election. Trump was publicly calling uh, to use the weaponry, the machinery of uh, the Justice Department against his political opponent. Of course, that's really in many ways what his uh, first impeachment was about when he was president. It was uh, essentially seeking to blackmail Ukraine's President Vladimir Zelensky using $500 million in American security assistance for Ukraine uh, and trying to hold that up in order to get Zelensky to investigate Joe Biden. So Trump, of course, has a long history of wanting to see the federal government as his own personal uh, weapon, if you will. And, you know, he he shouldn't surprise anybody with these calls. But again, it's still shocking. It has to be covered. And I think we are still faced with this conundrum of how to how to break through with this. Uh, many of the outrageous things that Trump has been saying on the campaign trail in 2024 haven't been covered, in my view, with the uh, seriousness that they should be. I noticed that the other day, that clip you played on Univision did not get a ton of attention, but then Trump over the weekend on Veterans Day uh, used some really extraordinary dehumanizing rhetoric that really echoed uh, that of dictators like Joseph Stalin and, and Hitler. That did get coverage. But I would mm. point out even there, it's not new for Donald Trump to call his opponents human scum, 
and the like. In fact, uh, that was something that uh, I always found one of the most shocking things that he did while the incumbent president of the United States. Uh, and I remember writing about that when he was president. So, you know, everything that's uh, shocking is not necessarily new from Donald Trump, but yet preserving one's ability to think, wow, this is something truly truly extreme and out of the ordinary. That's very important for us all. And we got a whole year of this campaign to look ahead to. Uh, indeed we do. I want to bring in one of our callers, Maggie in Port Ewan, New York. Maggie, welcome to WNYC. Hi, thanks. I wanted to say that I, I think what, what Biden needs to do is either get uh, Kamala Harris um, out there so that people can see that she's competent and capable of taking over for him if and when he dies in office. Um, or my preference would be to find a different Democrat, uh, Democratic woman uh, who is more popular. I would suggest maybe Elizabeth Warren, maybe Tammy Duckworth, um, who's a vet, you know, who can hate that. But somebody uh, who's competent, who's well-known, and who's likable um, to run with him. Because, you know, there's a, some chance that he's not going to make it through his second term. And, and that's, that's, I think, the issue. Maggie, would you say for you as a voter, your concerns about um, President Biden's age are really the driving concerns? Or, or are there other issues that you're going to be focused on throughout the 2024 cycle? Uh, I'm watching his foreign policy, which I think is on again, off again, and I don't know what he's doing. Um, uh, and um, the militarism, you know, uh, uh, sending more munitions to all the places where there are huge fights, and I don't know what the diplomacy is going is that's going on there. I think Blinken is a not very competent guy. Um, and then uh, also... Um, uh, his his policies on the environment are also uh, good and bad uh, in turn. So I'm watching both of those, but it's not like I'm going to vote for Trump instead. <laughs> Maggie, thank you so much for your call. And, and I think kind of she encapsulates the conundrum that a lot of potentially Democratic-leaning voters are facing. Um, Susan, any reaction and, and the, any notion to the idea of um, you know, if there were another running mate for Biden, would that help bolster some of his chances or at least his poll numbers at this point? Yeah, you know, I thought that was a very um, uh, interesting call. As you said, it sort of, you know, sums up uh, a lot of what we are all hearing uh, from Democratic voters these days. Uh, number one, when it comes to Kamala Harris, <laughs> I saw Jonathan Morgan in Politico. He had a very interesting column today with, you know, advice from Democrats on what Biden could do to turn things around. And he said, and, and I got to agree here, we got to, you know, just give up the idea that Biden is going to dump Harris. It's not going to happen. I think Jonathan <laughs> called it something like West Wing cosplay. Uh, you know, it's a fantasy, basically. And, you know, it would be saying uh, on the part of Biden that essentially his first decision that he made as a presidential nominee picking a vice president was a mistake. And it would also alienate potentially a, a crucial constituency for Democrats. Demo first of all, African-American women are literally the most loyal voting constituency of the Democrats. And mm. so uh, it really wouldn't, uh, at a time when you're very worried about 
turnout looking ahead to 2024. Uh, it doesn't seem like it would make political sense to get rid of a historic figure, the very first uh, African-American woman ever to be uh, vice president. So, you know, Democrats, I think, are still in the kind of bemoaning the situation phase. Sure. And we're very rapidly moving into the reality phase of the campaign, uh, which is for Democrats, got to be focused on beating Trump. And just to to Maggie's second point with some of her concerns around the foreign policy of this administration, from, from your view and, and from all of your reporting, do you think foreign policy wins or losses, you know, really can make the difference for a, a presidential candidate um, when it comes to an election? Do you think enough voters will be evaluating um, both what President Biden has done and potentially what the likely Republican nominee, former President Trump, would do um, when making their decision? Or do you think that that's a fact that's something that is probably lower in people's decision making you know, scale? Yeah, no, good point. Uh, absolutely good point. Uh, historically, foreign policy really in, in recent decades just hasn't rated when it comes to an actual uh, concern that mobilizes and motivates voters. That's been true. You know, it's it's just not even in recent years been in the top 10 uh, concerns of, of, of voters, Democrats or Republicans. Now, that being said, I think because we're talking about a different era in our politics when mobilization and motivation of one's own voters matters. Uh, Democrats need to be hyper-attuned to any uh, kind of softening of the support within their own base. And, you know, we all know Donald Trump is a base-obsessed politician. So, you know, he doesn't care so much what Democrats think. Both parties have significant internal divisions right now. And actually, over foreign policy, they do. You know, this is a moment when Republicans... Uh, you know, it almost goes without saying are deeply divided among themselves. Look at the spectacle that we just saw on Capitol Hill. Uh, Republicans essentially eating their own in a kind of fit of revolutionary zeal, dumping their own House speaker and uh, immobilizing the House of Representatives for weeks uh, because of their internal divisions. And one of the key fault lines among Republicans right now is versus this sort of what you might call the the traditionalist Republican hawkish foreign policy establishment and the kind of uh, America first or isolationist Trumpian uh, new wing of the party, uh, which is is gaining adherence by the day. And they have made issues like holding up aid, further aid for Ukraine has mm-hmm. been, uh, you know, the key kind of debate that we've seen start to play out this fall among Republicans. For Democrats, they haven't really broken with each other as much over Ukraine. But uh, this this war, of course, that has uh, occurred in the Middle East since the October 7th Hamas terrorist attack on Israel, uh, what we're seeing every day in Gaza, these just terrible, horrible images of uh, civilian casualties um, you know, being inflicted as part of Israel's military response to Hamas. This is a real division within the Democratic Party. And I think especially in some key states like Michigan, it could it could end up being a factor next year in terms of the motivation of Democratic voters to come out and vote for President Biden. Mm. I want to bring in another caller. We have lots of people calling in with essentially advice for President Biden. So I want to speak with Maria in Brooklyn. Maria, welcome to WNYC. Hi. Just shifting back to um, Biden being the candidate 
for the Democrats. My concern is the younger vote. I'm hearing from, you know, my my daughters and from other people that they are starting not to see a difference between Biden's policies and Trump's policies, like on the migrant issue, uh, this war, <laughs> for example. Um, and also, uh, you know, they say that uh, he's doing a good job getting inflation down and jobs are up, but the kids aren't feeling it. So I don't hmm. think they're going to come out for him like they did before. Uh, they're either going to vote third party or not vote at all. So that is really my concern, the younger vote. Maria, uh, thanks. starting to get very disillusioned. Thank you. Susan, some thoughts and reactions to both the concern about younger voters not being energized and then the threat posed by these potential third-party candidates and who they might be pulling votes away from. Yeah, I mean, if you have a tendency toward anxiety around national politics, there's a lot to be off the chart concerned about right now. Those are two important ones, I think, headed into 2024. As far as younger voter goes in this this question of mobilization, it's interesting. We haven't talked that much in this conversation today about uh, abortion rights and ever since Roe versus Wade was overturned by the Trump-appointed majority, I should point out, on the Supreme Court. You know, this has been a very effective uh, campaign mobilizer for uh, Democrats and around the country, including in red areas as well as uh, blue areas. And I think that, you know, you're going to see a lot of that campaigning. You know, Democrats haven't really focused yet on the 2024 general election, but uh, Doug Emhoff, the second gentleman, he was quoted recently as telling a, a private event that the Democrats' strategy for Biden's re-election was going to boil down to two Ds next year, Dobbs and democracy. And mm. I think certainly Dobbs, you would think, would be a big motivator for young voters around the country. So we'll see how that plays out. Uh, but I agree. I'm I'm hearing it, too. We're all hearing it. A distinct lack of enthusiasm for Joe Biden among young voters who historically have not just been somewhat in the Democratic camp, but have been hugely in the Democratic camp. We're going to have to leave it there for now, Susan. So much to watch this week. Uh, my guest has been New Yorker writer Susan Glasser. She writes a column there on life in Biden's Washington and co-anchors a weekly roundtable discussion, The Political Scene Podcast. She's also co-author with Peter Baker of The Divider, Trump in the White House 2017 through 2021. Susan, thank you so much for coming on the show today. Hey, great to be with you. Thank you. Brian Lehrer, A Daily Politics Podcast, is an excerpt from my live daily radio show, The Brian Lehrer Show, on WNYC Radio, 10 a.m. to noon Eastern Time, if you want to listen live at WNYC.org. Thanks for listening today. Talk to you next time.